Hey there, it's me, Josh. And for this week's SYSK Selects, I chose How Disco Works, which is one of my favorite, all-time favorite episodes. Um, and you'll know what I'm talking about in a second when I say that I feel like if we all band together, we could still get Chuck to do that how-to video on The Hustle. Uh, also, don't miss Chuck's big presentation after his first trip to Max FunCon instead of listener mail. It's a very special treat at the end of this episode, which was first released in July of 2012. Enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant getting on down with his bad self. Get on down, Matt Tical, doing the hustle. Oh, oh, is that what you're doing? Uh, sure. I actually looked up the hustle because I wasn't quite sure what it was specifically. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, because no one who does it now knows what they're doing. Yeah, but then I saw it. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. The, like sort of the boogie night stance they did was. Isn't there like a hand rolling? The yeah, there's a little step up, a little step back, a little mm-hmm. like s- side, three sixty, clap clap. Little John Travolta Saturday Night Fever hand action, uh-huh. little little hand roll, the little uh, what do you call that? This would be much better visually. I'll tell you what. Why don't we get you uh, doing just a, <laughs> a quick how-to video, and we'll post it. Sound good? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, you'll be held to that. I know. That's I'll do great. it. Great. I'm gonna go start looking for clothes okay. right after this. <laughs> um, so, uh, Chuck, you doing well? Yes. You're feeling invigorated by the uh, presidential. Executive Orders episode. Yeah, Are you ready for this? Fires me up for disco. So for disco, um, let's start at the end. I thought that Molly yeah. did a very good job with this. This is Agreed. a Molly Edmonds jam. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, there was a, a night uh, in 1979. It was July 12th in Chicago, and it was the White Sox playing the Tigers. And both of them were lousy at the time. Yeah. Uh, the night before, there had been uh, 15,000 people. For the Tiger Sox, there's a doubleheader today, and um, they expected something like six thousand. Yeah. Right. The the I guess the owners of the White Sox had started to create these promotions, and one of them that night on July 12th um, had been created by a rock DJ named Steve Dahl, who's a Chicago DJ. Yeah, I looked him up actually. He was fired. This is why he was so angry. He was fired by a station that switched to disco. Oh. He got a job at the competing rock station, uh, WLUP 98FM, uh-huh. which is why it was 98 cents. The loop. That was the loop, actually. The loop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not the lube, the loop. The lup. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, he got fired and said, down with disco. Well, he said, disco sucks. Yeah. There was a whole movement against disco T-shirts that said "Disco sucks." This is before memes. Yeah, this was this was the real like you had to like run out of your house, go across the street to a neighbor's house, tell them "Disco sucks." Yeah. And they had to run out of their house, <laughs> maybe a couple blocks over to their, their their friends. That's how things spread back then. Yeah, and this thing was like virulent, right? I miss those times. 
on this night, even with this um, this disco demolition night, is what they called it, um, they were expecting like 6,000 people. But they, they were going to put on a heck of a show. In between the two games, Dahl was going to take all the records that people brought. If you brought a, a disco record, mm. um, you'd get in for 98 cents. Because that was uh, 98 point something. Yeah. This is before it was point. This is when it was just 98 on your dial. Oh, okay. I mean, technically it was, but it wasn't digital, so no one knew. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and 90,000 people showed up. <laughs> 90,000 people showed up. Like, 90,000. The yeah. stadium held like 50. 52. Right? 52,000. So there's like 38,000 people outside the gates. When you have 38,000 people who are there for to see something destroyed, yeah. <laughs> um which which um Dahl was going to do to these records in between games. Mm-hmm. They don't usually stay outside at gates. Fences don't usually contain people in that state in that many larger number. Yeah. They broke through um the apparently players on both teams put on their batting helmets cuz the yeah. crowd was getting crazy. Well, they were throwing uh the records like frisbees. They were That's dangerous. Smoking weed. In the stadium, like Harry Carey, you know, a younger Harry Carey announced that, you know, like he smelled marijuana <laughs> in his broadcast booth. Wow. And they got loaded because they were mad, so angry about a form of music. Right. So the the first game ends, and I guess what you would call halftime comes, <laughs> and Johnny Fever, I mean Steve Dahl, yeah. uh, compiles 10,000, an estimated 10,000 disco records. And sets him on fire. Well, he exploded him first. Oh, he did. Which took out like a chunk of the field. Yeah, I was wondering how they did that. Yeah, they were. He was hooked up to pyrotechnics, and there was a big explosion. And ten thousand disco records went boom. Yeah, pretty right? much. And a little fire started. People went crazy. Yeah, they trashed the place. Yeah, they stormed the field. And um, they the Sox had to forfeit the second game to the Tigers because yeah. they they couldn't play. The field was just too trashed. And that was the night, July twelfth, nineteen seventy nine. That most people point to when they say disco died right then. Yeah. Chance of disco sucks. Yeah. People smoking weed in front of Harry Carey. Yeah. Uh, and consequently, that was the last forfeited Major League Baseball game in the American League. Oh, is that right? The most recent, that is. That is an amazing story. Yeah. But, and, and it makes a lot of sense. You like, can find video of this on YouTube, by the way. There was a, well, that's awesome. There was um, definitely, even I knew, like there was a, an anti-disco, disco sucks sentiment. I remember it. That's I, how old I am. Well, I remember it, too. Yeah. I was like eight years old when this happened. I was like three. Yeah. Yeah, I was three. I was actually, this was three days before my third birthday. This all wow. went down. Look at that. I don't remember this happening, but I, like I knew people said disco suck, like on an airplane. Um, when the plane's like making that crazy landing, uh-huh. they knock out a tower where the DJ's like saying, where disco lives forever. Right, right. right? Um, I, I knew people hated disco, but now reading this and figuring out that the the disco was this amazing cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. and in unpacking like the story behind it and the motives of hating it and all that are, yeah it's really really interesting it's not as cut and dry as like you know ted nugent thinks disco sucks so yeah. disco sucks maybe ted nugent is a homophobe huh <laughs> that's what cultural critics would say now and we'll get yeah, into that we not, will not ted nugent specifically but Anyone who thought disco sucks, it's not so cut and dry as just the music. Music. It was Tenujit. Yeah, I figured. Uh, You know what I I would liken this to? What? Zoot Suits. Oh, yeah, good one. The interesting history, uh, then it turns out there was like racial and 
misogynistic, well, not misogynistic in zoot suits, but um, in the case of disco, yes. Yeah. Misogynistic, homophobic. homophobic. Yeah. Basically, uh, the straight white establishment does not like flashy dressing. Yeah, and they don't like them, them New Yorkers. Yeah, well, it, in their in their bars where it, they dance with their shirts off. Yes, that kind of thing. E.g., gay clubs. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the music, and then we'll get into the politics. Oh, okay. So, um, what was Chuck the first disco record? Do you think? Disco Duck. <laughs> no. No. Dolly Parton. No. Disco Dolly. No. No. She actually did some disco tinged stuff. I know. Uh, so did the Grateful Dead. Everybody did. It sucked yeah, everyone. Carol King, Barbara Streisand. It's amazing the people that that got caught up in this disco wave. Disco Christmas, Disco Star Wars. Oh, dude. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Disco was huge. From when? From uh, what? Nineteen seventy. Seventy four to seventy nine. Oh well, yeah. Was when it was huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, some trace of beginnings of disco to the early parties, um, in New York, uh, thrown by David Mancuso. These invitation only parties. Yeah. That he had at his place called The Loft. Yep. Uh, legendary first party called Love Saves the Day. They were themed. LSD. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was a store in the East Village called Love Saves the Day. I don't know if it's still there. Okay. It's like brick a brick. Like, uh, Everything's coated in acid, though. Kind of like junk man's here in Atlanta. Gotcha. That kind of thing. Um, so a lot of people trace it to Mancuso and, and those early parties, which later on was sort of the precursor to what raves would be. Right, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and Mancuso um, kind of created this um, this foundation that would become kind of the basis of disco, which was it was DJ driven. Yeah. And um, the DJ didn't just like one song didn't just fade out, and they're like, okay, it's time for the next one, and put on another record. Mancuso actually dropped a bunch of money on a sound system that allowed him to cut back and forth between records. And um, he also liked to, to basically just cr- just use all sorts of different music, yeah, and and create this whole really cool set. The and music al- never stopped, basically. No, it didn't. Um, and he so that was kind of this this basis that you'll see turn up later in hip hop. But yeah. first, it appears in disco. Sure. But yeah, he started throwing these parties in 1970. But I've read sources that say it goes back even further than that. Oh, really? 1960, uh, Le Club was opened in New York. In 1965, Arthur was opened. These are dance clubs? They were, because they were, um, they were DJ driven. And that was like, that's one of the bases of disco. Sure. Is the DJ. And there's this guy named Terry Knoll. And he went off, he became probably the first DJ. I know. I know that name, don't I? Or do I? Maybe. I mean, he's pretty, pretty big. I mean, he's like the godfather of DJing. Yeah, I might know him. I don't know DJs that much, though. But so that he branched off and um, he started working at gay clubs. Uh-huh. And gay clubs is where disco really started to emerge. Yeah. Um, so if you if you go back far enough, at about the same time that uh, Mancuso was throwing his parties, yeah. the gay clubs had like DJs playing Philly Soul. Yeah, in New York City specifically. Yep. Which uh, is where yeah. they think that disco originally came from. It's probably Philadelphia Soul. Yeah, Philadelphia Soul. If you listen to works by, um, like some people claim that things like uh, Barry White's Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe. Or um, his uh, love theme from 1973. Yeah, those very much sound like disco, even yeah. though they were R&B soul singers. The same with like Isaac Hayes. Right, but that is funk, clear and simple, right? 
Isaac Hayes is definitely funk. Sure. And a lot of people rightly attribute the death of funk to disco. Like, they both had this moment, and disco just won out. Yeah. It's easier to dance to for one reason. Should we listen to the Barry White? Yeah. Which one? Uh, This is Love's Theme from 1973. And you can hear, like, the big orchestral sound with, like, the um, the four-on-the-floor beat. So that's people say that that may be the first disco one. Another one is Jerry Butler's um, "One Night Affair," oh, and, yeah. and this guy, this song really shows that disco hybridized out of Philadelphia soul. Right. If that's true, then this is the purest evidence of it. And then one more. Do you mind? No, no. So this one is, this is from Cameroon, a guy named Manu uh, Debango. From the island of Cameroon? Does the is it an island? No, it's not. It's landlocked. <laughs> well, you know, if it was it surrounded by coastal. water, it'd be an island. Right. Yeah. Uh, but th- it's just Cameroon we're going with. Um, his name is Manu Debango, and uh, he released a track called Sol Makasa. And Sol Makasa... Um, is noteworthy because a lot of people say it's the first disco song. Well, let's hear it. So you hear it's like very clearly Cameroonian. Yeah. It's very African. Yeah. Very, it's got that tribal beat, but it's also disco-y. The reason why people point to that song, which was released in 1972, is because a, a year later... Um, a Rolling Stone um, rock critic or music critic mm-hmm. named Vince Aletti w- put a paper pen to paper and described that the 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 reason behind this obscure Cameroonian song's popularity is because of this new thing that's going on out in Queens and the Bronx and all the hip kids are doing it and uh, we don't know what it's called so let's just call it disco. And that was the first mention. It's, he coined the term disco as, as applied to this music. Yeah, yeah. And it was the first written uh, description of disco. Ah. Vincelletti, 1973. So I think we failed to mention that disco obviously is short for discotheque, mm-hmm. which is the French term for nightclub. For a nightclub where you listen to canned music. Right. Rather and, than a live and band. And you still hear that and see that when you go all over Europe. You still hear like, discotheque, yes? Right, right. Guys trying to get you in there, you know? Yeah. It's pretty great. That was a pretty good impression. Uh, some nameless country. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. Eastern Bloc. Let's just go with that. Is that I would have uh, I would have guessed like Morocco. Oh, okay. Whatever it sounded like, that's what I was doing. You just kind of said something very important that a discotheque, one of us just said it, 
that a discotheque is a dance club where there's no band. Yeah. And this flew in the face of the rock establishment at the time. Oh, sure. They were still like very much entrenched in the 60s. Dude, they were, Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and like... You went and saw them. Yeah. That was the point. Like you went and saw their show and when you know, when they weren't touring, you listened to their records at home and, and sat on beanbag chairs. Yeah, and worshipped at their feet. Exactly. Disco was different. And the reason disco is different is because nobody cared. They didn't want to hear your live band. They went to go see the DJ. Yeah, and that had a big impact on record sales because people weren't, you know, it was one hit wonder after one hit wonder. Exactly. For the, for the most part, there were, you know, quite a few that had multiple hits. But Donna Summer, But BGs, they were still like... Few and far between. Yeah, and they were confined to the disco era. Right. Not, not too many lasted beyond unless they were... Like crossing over to begin with, like right. Dolly Parton or Carol King or right, gotcha. uh, Barbara Streisand. Uh, but you will hear, you know, since 1974 with Rock the Boat by the Hughes Corporation, mm-hmm. which, <laughs> speaking of one hit wonder, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people say that's when it really, really took off. Um, Le Chic, I'm sorry, Le Freak by Chic. And Good Times by Chic. Good Times. Oh, did they do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I Will Survive, of course, the classic anthem by Gloria Gaynor. Uh-uh. Funky Town, KC and the Sunshine Band with their multiple hits. Yeah, they were another group, disco group. Get Down Tonight, Shake Your Booty. Yeah. Classic songs. I'm Your Boogeyman. Play That Funky Music, Wild I hate Cherry. That song. I do I too. Hate that song. No, I really do too. That's up there with Bad to the Bone for me. Hey, man, George Thorogood is A OK. <laughs> There's nothing that guy did that stunk. Except for that. God, playing that funky music is so... I told you George Thurgood worked out with me at the YMCA in Hollywood. Yeah. Like, not with me. The last time we had this argument, you told me. Oh, really? Yeah. And you still and you still maintain that he stinks, even though he... No, can... I don't maintain okay. he stinks. I think George Thurgood's oh, awesome. Oh, you still maintain he's good. That's what I meant. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're wrong. Philadelphia Soul Josh is where it was born. We talked about that. I know. And uh, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. Well, yeah. So, like, if you didn't have one hit, you didn't have groups generally that people followed or whose records they bought. You had one hit wonders. So, singles were kind of big. And you had um, DJs. People went to specific clubs to see specific DJs. And you had producers. People would, would get, would find out, like, what song. A producer was making, and then they go see, they go listen to that, right? Like Gamble and Huff, right? Who, uh, or I can't remember the name of their company, but it was Philadelphia something, and it was all about Philadelphia soul. It started in the Philadelphia soul movement, like previous in the '60s, and pretty much dwarfed Motown for a little while. Yeah, which was a big, big, big deal at yeah. the time. Yeah, and, Motown uh, was too huge. Yeah, Barry Gordy and Motown took a hit uh, when disco came around. There was also a Giorgio uh, Moroder. He was huge. He was a huge uh-huh. disco guy. Really? He actually um, produced uh, Donna Summers. And then the uh, K's, they created Sasol Records, uh, which is a pretty big disco label. Well, Gamble and Huff, um, you know their work if you don't know their names, and they wrote songs like Ain't No Stopping Us Now. That's a good one. Uh, Love Train. That's a great one. And The Sound of Philadelphia, TSOP, which you might not recognize by title, but you might recognize by the fact that it is also the Soul Train theme. That is a very, very good song. Very good song. That's surprisingly good. I remember Fresh Air played that when uh, Don Cornelius died. Oh, yeah. I bet. R.I.P. Uh, so, and also, can I just interject one thing? Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're bored right now, um, or I should say, of course you're not bored right now, friends. 
after the podcast, if you find yourself bored, <laughs> go check out um, Moonshoes Boogie Land. I think those four words are actually just two words on YouTube, and you will be treated to an awesome new, I guess, acid disco track over, um, just laid perfectly over the Soul Train, like the march, the procession thing, the oh, yeah. lines they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just clip after clip of that. And it's great. you will be surprised to see a young rerun in the first couple of minutes. I think I've seen minutes. that clip. I think you have too. I've seen him on Soul Train. Yeah, where he just falls on his butt. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that stuff was good. I mean, how do you move like that? I couldn't do any of those moves. No, I couldn't either. Moon Shoes, Boogie Land. Yeah, and you know what? Also, if if you're a little young, but you're a Star Wars fan, and you don't remember the Mecco Star Wars and other galactic funk, go check that out. It's on YouTube. <laughs> it's pretty amazing to hear the Star Wars score orchestral arrangement yeah. to disco. And it was a big, big hit. That Well, that's not the only one. Arthur Fiedler from the Boston Pops. He yeah. did a night on Bald Mountain to disco. Uh-huh. There was, I can't remember who, who made it, but it's on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, uh, Fifth of Beethoven. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. People love to take classical stuff and disco fight. They disco fight everything. Like you said, Dolly yeah. Parton, Star Wars, Disco Duck. Sesame Street had not one, but two disco albums, disco Christmas albums. Disco yeah. is everywhere. And even if you do say disco sucks, you cannot say that musically, disco sucks. Musically speaking, disco does not suck. It is difficult to play. It includes generally tough orchestral arrangements. And while it may be repetitive, and if you went and saw your favorite disco performer playing a club, they were just lip syncing. Yeah. It's still, initially, it was difficult to make. Yeah, I think where disco takes the biggest knock from from music, rock music fans is lyrically. Right, and for good reason. Sure. So disco, we were saying it was uh, it flew in the face of of rock, the yeah. rock scene in Manhattan at the time. Yeah. In part because it was out in the Bronx, out in Queens. Mm-hmm. It was very popular among the working class. Yeah. Latinos. Um, yeah, Latinos, Italians. It spread out of the uh, the gay clubs. Yeah. Um. So, white gay dudes in underground clubs mm-hmm. dancing to music, um, created by black people, mm-hmm. black groups, um, and then inter- mixed in with working class Italians and Latinos yeah. in that same club. That was disco. And that is not what the rich kids in Manhattan were doing at the time, rocking out. Well, yeah, and that's a point that a lot of people a lot of people were misguided in saying at one point that disco was of the bourgeois because Studio 54 yeah. transformed from a dance club of the people to a dance club of the elite. Right. And everyone started grooming, uh, over-grooming and dressing to the nines and spending all this money. Mm-hmm. And Well, they did before. Not, yeah, but... But it, once the rich people sure. got involved, it was like, you can't keep up with that. Yeah. and it, But it started out as very much a music of the people. Yeah. Um, and like we said, Disco Fever was like, they were doing the hustle in retirement homes. Yeah. Like disco classes. My parents took disco dance lessons. Yeah. And my dad does not take disco dance lessons, yet he did. That's pretty interesting. Like, that's how big it was. Well, I mean, if you go back and watch, like, Saturday Night Fever, for example, that's some pretty good dancing in there. Yeah. Oh, of course. I'll bet your dad was, like, 80% sexier when he was taking <laughs> disco lessons. He probably was. So, um, we've got this thing, and it's weird. Let's, I think it bears repeating, Chuck. Like, when you think of disco these days, you think of Studio 54. Yeah. You think of cocaine, which is 
that they were symbiotic. Yeah, quaaludes. Yeah. Um, and you think of the beautiful and the rich yes. in, in Manhattan. Yes. Right? That, But like you said, that's not how it started out. It was working class. It crossed ethnic lines. Gays were involved. Um, and it was... It, it basically was co-opted and usurped. And then all of a sudden, now there's a division between it. And the people who were criticizing it before really started to speak up, meaning the rockers. And they yeah. really had a point. Like you said, the lyrics, fly, rob, and fly, who cares? Yeah. And the other part of the problem was is disco was meant for escape. Like it was set in this time of economic hardship. New York City yeah. was hit particularly hard. It was about hard. getting out there and dancing your frustrations out. And forgetting everything. Yep. The problem is, is while you're dancing, politicos don't dance. Right. And while everybody else is dancing, they're just doing whatever they want. Yeah. And no one's paying attention because they're dancing. So um, especially once it crossed over to the rich and became like divided by class, rockers really started to have some some ground to stand on by saying disco's vapid and, and politically and apolitical and it sucks for those reasons. And yeah. it's, it started to become true after that point. Right, right. Have you ever seen uh, Summer of Sam? No. Good one. Is it? Yeah, that's the Spike Lee one about the Son of Sam killings, yeah. but... Beyond, it's it's more a movie about that time and period in New York City in that summer yeah. than it is about this. I mean, some of Sam figures or some of Sam figures in right, like huge, but it really just captures that time period nicely. It it's good, and plus that John Languizamo. <laughs> Saturday Night Fever changed everything. Josh, nineteen seventy seven, great great movie. Did you read the article? Uh, yeah, I read the article, and I've seen the movie probably five or six times. So I read the article recently, like yesterday. Yeah. It's called um, The Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. It was written in 76 by yeah. a guy named Nick Cohn, and it was the cover story of New York Magazine, right? Mm-hmm. He made it up. Oh, really? Did you know that? No. Apparently, in 1994, he came out to The Guardian and said, like, I, I fabricated everything. Tony didn't exist. Wow. Um. No, Vincent, the main guy, didn't exist. He said he made up practically the whole thing. Like, he'd just gotten to New York and, like, just started hanging out and just wrote the thing. Wow. I can't believe he made it all up. He did. Crazy. Great movie, though, and famous for the, uh, not only the dancing, uh, great story, coming-of-age story. Yeah. Um, and the suit. The white suit. <laughs> with the black shirt. The black shirt. It wouldn't have popped nearly as much without that black uh, shirt. Oh, no, no, no. The wi- and the white vest, which uh, Gene Siskel owned for a while. Did really? you know that? Yeah. It's now at the uh, a museum of, of music in, I think, New York. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, Siskel cleaned up on it. He bought it in 78 because he was such a huge fan of the movie. <laughs> bought it for two grand, sold it in 1995 for $145,000. Nice. Yes. That fat cat. And he's no longer with us. I know. Okay. Um. But the clothing was a huge deal. The fashion of disco was arguably as important as it was just all a part of the scene. It was all intermingled. Yeah. The polyester, the spandex, the tight clothes, revealing as much skin as you can, jewelry, leopard prints. It was like out of control. Yeah. And it's kind of come back, of course, like all fashion does. Yeah. Well, especially with that early 80s throwback that's going on or that was going on. Yeah. Now, now I think we've reached mid to late 80s, like the... The uh, Fresh Prince years. Yeah, what does it take, 20 years, supposedly, or something like that? Supposedly. So, grunge is next, I guess. We'll be flying the flannel soon. I am soon. not looking forward to that. I, I still got my flannel. I'll, <laughs> I'll be I'm covered. You're like, hey, I'm hip. <laughs> uh, you talked about Studio 54, which is now still called Studio 54, but it's a theater. Huh. Um, 
another popular club. If you live in New York, you might be walking by these places and not even realize it. Yeah, like um, the Sanctuary, which uh-huh. became Limelight, yep. made famous in Party Monster. That's now like a church that you can shop in. Well, Paradise Garage, very famous um, on King Street in New York, very famous discotheque, is now Verizon. Mm-hmm. Is uh, it really? Yeah. Man. Uh, Xenon on West 43rd. Uh, Xenon was a huge discotheque, and it is now the Stephen Sondheim Theater. Okay, well, you can do worse than that. <laughs> exactly. So uh, if you're walking around New York and you see these places, just remember there was a lot of drugs and sex and dancing going on there Yeah, 30-plus years ago. Yeah, people forgetting their economic turmoil troubles. That's right. Um, so we said that, well, you said that the record industry kind of took a hit, um, because of disco. Yeah. People weren't out buying their albums by their favorite artists because there were no favorite artists. No. And there was like, it, it took a little while for the effects to show up, but from like 1978 to 1982, record sales dropped by like 200 million units. Yeah. That's a lot. That is a lot. Um, and so the record industry turned on disco eventually this this thing that had created this kind of vapid um very quick very attractive sexy uh, movement mm-hmm. or help promote it and push it out into the mainstream like and shoved down everybody's throats were the the ones that turned their back on it right um i don't think people were quite ready to yet but the record industry was and um that probably more than anything led to Disco's demise, more than this Comiskey Park thing. I mean, that's like a... It was symbolic. It was very symbolic. But yeah. if the record industry is no longer agreeing to produce disco records, yeah. there's no disco records. That's what's going to kill it doesn't disco. matter if people want it or not. And, you know, looking back, it was bound It was bound to be a, a fad. It's not a lasting thing. Okay. Although... It's come back around now with stuff like Scissor Sisters and well, not just that new disco. The reason why this the, the the title of this episode is in present tense is because maybe the name died, but that four on the floor beat, yeah, and then what now accompanied with like electronic music that sure. never went away. No, you're right. It, it may have faded in the background. Now it's like all over the radio. Yeah, with like Katy Perry stuff and Britney Spears stuff. Ooh. I'm told. Um, they 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 use the same stuff. It's just disco. It's just a different name for it. Yeah. Uh, at its peak, Josh, 1979, disco was a $4 billion industry, mm-hmm. and they claim more than 15,000 uh, discos in the United States. That's a lot. So they spread from the cities, clearly, to uh, the Bible Belt, the Rust Belt, the Heartland. Yeah. And uh, as we'll get into now, it wasn't very accepted by... The white male establishment, a.k.a. rock and roll fans. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And people just kind of, on the surface, it's just because, you know, disco and rock, they, they they don't go together, you know? But there's a lot of, like we said at the beginning, cultural critics who say, you know, that people who are into disco didn't think about rock. They didn't care about rock. No, they were high and dancing. People who are into rock... Hated disco. Yeah. Why? It was a threat, uh, they claim, and they were probably very right, to their 
what they thought were good American values. They didn't like gay people. Yeah. Didn't probably like black people and Latinos. Or women divas hogging the spotlight. Yep, because rock and roll in the 19, unless your name is like Patti Smith, it wasn't a big haven for female singers. Right, or like uh, or Grace Slick. She was backed up by an all-male band. Yeah. You know, it was like very rare for like a female lead. And even then, it sure. was like the one girl in a, a guy band. You yeah, know? unless you're the Runaways, I guess. Right. Which well, is like they made a movie about him. It was such a big deal. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's a good point, Chuck. But for the most part, disco represented everything that was a threat to the white, straight establishment. That's right. And that's why a lot of people think that this whole disco sucks movement came about. Yeah. So if you are one of those people who's just like, disco sucks, maybe you should reevaluate exactly why you think disco sucks. Is it really just the music? And if it is, hey, man, like, I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. But if uh, there's probably a lot of people out there who think disco sucks and don't even know that disco is pretty gay and maybe that's why you don't like it. Or yeah. disco is pretty black and maybe that's why you don't like it. Or maybe you just hate women. Maybe, well, <laughs> maybe you should go work on your relationship with your mother and then take another listen to disco and see if it sounds any sweeter. Well, it was the whole lifestyle. It was, it was hedonistic. Uh, you had the village people as sort of the cartoonish face of, of the gay movement at the time, you know, dressing up and, yeah. you know, it was, it was not accepted in, in these rock and roll circles in the Midwest and in the <laughs> South and, it just was not cool. But even in New York or London or wherever, like you got punk, punk, yeah, punk people hated disco. But at least they, for the most part, had a legitimate leg to stand on, which was punk was intended to be political, and disco was not political at all. So like Mark uh, Mothersbaugh, is it Mothersbaugh or Mothersbaugh? M- Mothersbaugh. Okay, he he apparently went to Studio Fifty Four and had a crazy experience on PCP. Um, but he said that uh, disco was like a dumb girl with uh, good looks and good body. Oh. Which is kind of like, it's an apt description, I guess, of, of disco in, in a way. Yeah, that makes sense. So this guy who wrote this book, what's it called? Uh, his name's Peter Shapiro. He wrote Turn the Beat Around, colon, The Secret History of Disco. Yeah, he argues, and he makes a pretty good point, that disco was the most democratic musical form ever in the history of music. Yeah. Yeah, he said it's the most de- democratic form of popular music ever conceived. And it really brought about the gay culture into the mainstream. Yeah. Even though it wasn't super accepted in all circles, it was the first time it was like in your face, out in the open, we're dancing, and here's the village people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who I used to draw pictures of. I still have one. Did you really? Yeah, I still have a, this crayon photo, uh, or photo, crayon drawing that I did of the village people. And I wore that album out. And I'm sure my parents were like, what's going on here? <laughs> <I'll bet. laughs> Especially in like Stone Mountain, Georgia in yeah. like 1975. You're like, can I dress like a leather daddy for Halloween this year? <laughs> I thought the biker guy was the coolest one. I was like, he's so tough. Yeah, look at that mustache. I know. Oh boy, it's funny. To, it was such an innocent time, you know? For me, at least. Yeah, it was. That was a good time to, to grow up on a wares. Oh, it was great. Because you could just love disco. You didn't know they were on no cocaine agenda. and quaaludes and yeah. doing all that stuff. Exactly. Uh, what else you got? Oh, uh, I think we should, we'd should. we be remiss in mentioning disco's role in hip-hop, like we said earlier. Oh, yeah. Um, 
you may have noticed that that whole DJing thing kind of crossed over. Sure. And if you doubt disco as a foundation for hip hop and rap, uh, you look you need look no further than what 1983, uh, the Sugar Hill Gang's Rappers Delight. Yeah, all that's almost all Sheik's Good Times. Oh yeah, a disco anthem. That's right. You were dead right, sir. Uh, and then of course it's influence on, like we said, all dance music to come. Really, yeah, electronica. Rays. It never stopped. Yeah. You can't stop the music. And I imagine it's going on now. Like, there's probably some very cool underground parties that you and I will never, ever, <laughs> ever, ever know exist. Yeah. Um, but that are real basically deal just disco. doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scissor Sisters, I mentioned them. I know there's a lot more bands, but they're really, like, riffing on that old disco thing. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Hercules and Love Affair. That's a good one. I don't know them. They're, uh, it's uh, Anthony and the... Uh, Anthony the Johnsons? Yeah, his side project. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty, it's very disco. I love that guy. Um, Boy, he does such like morose orchestral downbeat stuff. This is not like that. Really? Yeah, it's like his other and different, he's got to get out his happiness so he can go do the Anthony and the Johnsons thing. I'm trying to imagine him happy. That'd be so weird. Yeah. Anyway, I'm a fan of his. I'll check that out. Yeah. New disco, it's all over the place. It is. Um, if you want to... Oh, wait, quickly. We should say R.I.P. because we lost two disco legends recently to cancer. Oh, yeah, let's hear it. Donna Summer and Robin Gibb both passed within the past like a month. Oh, yeah. And uh, Who will be the third? Yeah. The disco third. Well, there were four, not disco, but four musicians with cancer in like the span of six weeks. It was sad. Who? Well, um, Adam Yauch and, oh, and yeah. Levon Helm. Oh, yeah. Donna Summer and Robin Gibb. It was That's like, right. bam, four in a row. So then who will be the other two? <laughs> yes. Jeez. I hope nobody. I hope not too. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're, we're done with disco? We are the Knights on Broadway, yeah. and we are done with disco. Very nice. Which sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't you, like the music. You didn't like disco music? No, it's not. You know, I was I was listening to rock and roll pretty early on. I like it. I like I like it all, but then also I was listening to the Smiths' Death, Death of a Disco Dancer today oh, great too. Great song, it's a great song, um, and it makes you wonder, like exactly why did that disco dancer die? That's right, huh? Um, if you want to learn more about disco, you can type that in. Surprisingly enough, to the search bar at How Stuff Works, and it will bring up this article. And uh, let's see, since I said article, uh, it's time for Chuck's presentation. Yeah, Josh, in lieu of listener mail, uh, I just got back from Max FunCon. Woo! Um, and I'm going to do a little presentation called Max Fun Plug. Woo! Because great people are involved and we need to give them their due. Okay. Uh, firstly, want to thank Jesse Thorne and recognize Jesse Thorne. Friend oh, of, yeah. Friend of Stuff You Should Know. The Godfather. Great guy. Uh, he has a an empire out there in, in California. Mm-hmm. Um, a podcasting empire, and you can... Podcasting and knockoff wallets. Yeah. <laughs> He's a fashion icon. Uh, Jesse, you can you can go to MaximumFun.org to look up his bag. He uh, it used to be The Sound of Young America. Mm-hmm. Now his main show is called Bullseye. It's an yeah. interview show. It's really great. We've been on it. Yeah. We talked about Mexican wrestling on it. Was that on Bullseye? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? I thought it might have been on Jordan Jesse Go. Oh, man. Okay. Well, Jordan Jesse Go, since I mentioned it, is one of his other shows with his partner Jordan, and they're that's a funnier one. 
Although they're all funny. Uh, but thanks to Jesse, he, he has this, um, concept that he's, he's built the maximum fun empire on called New Sincerity. Mm-hmm. And it's just great. It's nice people. It's, it, it eschews, uh, cynicism and, uh, and this ironic crap. Oh, that's cool. That everyone does. And it's, it's called New Sincerity. It really says it all. Did he found new sincerity? Is it yeah. like like a lightning bolt or a light bulb that he had? Uh, yeah, that's cool. I mean, you Google new sincerity and it comes up as Jesse Thorne's mantra. I'm going to start taking him more as more sincere. Then yeah. I always assumed he was making fun of me. No, of course not. He's Weird. a very sincere guy. And uh, his wife Teresa and little little baby Simon were all there, mm-hmm. and they're all doing great, and they're wonderful people. So, uh, riff tracks was in the house. Yes. Formerly Mystery Science Theater 3000, Josh's Ooh. Heroes, uh, Kevin Murphy and Bill Corbett, uh, Tom Servo and Crow T. Robot. Yeah. People, they are fans of Stuff You Should Know. Yeah. And I flipped out, emailed Josh, <laughs> and uh, beyond that, they are literally the two nicest guys I've met so far in show business. You said that in the email. Yeah. I can vouch for that. They are the nicest dudes I've ever met in show business so far. That's awesome. And that includes John Hodgman. <laughs> Ooh. Hodgman's not going to like that. That's right. But maybe he'll step it up. And I, I would say Hodgman will take that as a challenge. You think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can go to Riftracks, R-I-F-F-T-R-A-X.com. You can buy their stuff. You can buy, uh, look out for Riftracks Live. They're uh, awesome and funny and worth supporting for sure. Yeah. Um, my brother, my brother, and me, we were on their show. The McElroy brothers, Justin, Travis, and Griffin, hung out with them a lot. Really super cool dudes. They had their uh, uh, wives and girlfriends with them, and uh, they were all sweet and funny and nice and uh, great people. And they have um, a great podcast called My Brother, My Brother, and Me. New episodes out every Monday. Mm-hmm. You can find that at MaximumFun.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, Travis, who is the middle bro, co-hosts mm-hmm. a show also called In Case of Emergency. That's very funny. Um, and then Justin and his uh, wife, Sydney, have a show called Satellite Dish that's about TV shows. And they're both really funny. Okay. It was like literally all six of them were six of the funniest people I've hung around. That's really cool, man. I was like, man, Christmas must be a blast. Yeah. Around the Mac. They don't even get each other presents. They sit around and like (laughs) delight one another. Uh, Mary Roach was there, author of Stiff, which we've plugged. Stiff. Boink. Spook. Bonk. Bonk. Spook. Spook and... um, Packing for Mars. Yeah. What is she like? She's 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 cool. Yeah. I didn't meet her, but I heard her lecture. Uh, Susan Orlean lectured. What did she lecture on? On science-y authoring and cool stuff like that. Oh, so it was like a workshop. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Susan Orlean was there. She was great. Orchid thief lady. Yep. You know her as Meryl Streep. Yeah. Um, I did not meet her, but uh, she was was great on stage as well. Uh, Josh Bierman, who I met, Joshua Bierman, Mm -hmm. he's one of Hodgman's buddies. Yeah. He is a writer, and you can find his work in Rolling Stone, Wired, Harper's. This American Life, McSweeney's, HuffPo, he's like all over the place. And he is genuinely one of the delightfully weirdest dudes I've ever hung out with in my life. Nice. Like one of those guys just like, man, you are so odd and I want to hug you. Talk to you for hours, that kind of dude. Hodgman has another friend like that named David Reese, who I met. He's next on. You met David? Yeah. Okay. He's, he's next awesome. On I, I, have, I have a David Reese story, may I? Well, let me set up who he is first. Oh, okay. Uh, David Rees is, uh, an art, he was formerly the, the cartoonist, uh, that you might know from Get Your War On. Yes. Great political cartoon. And, yeah. and during the Bush years, he is now an artisanal pencil sharpener. 
And you heard me correctly. He sharpens pencils by hand. Um, he goes on tour teaching this. He has a book that you can buy called How to Sharpen Pencils. And uh, you can go to artisanalpencilsharpening.com. <laughs> you can send him your pencils. He will sharpen them by hand and return the pencil and the clippings. <laughs> and the clippings. Because the clippings belong to the client. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not a joke, but it is a joke. It's funny, but he's really serious about it. Well, yeah, I mean, he'll really sharpen your pencils, and he really wrote a book on it. I'm glad you met him. I didn't know that. He's a cool dude. He's awesome. Uh, so let's hear the story. I, I um, Yumi and I went and saw his, uh, his I guess, book tour show um, in Brooklyn when we were there a couple weeks ago. And uh, before the show, I was talking to him and Hodgman, and we were all hanging out. And um, I was like, well, break a leg. And I turned to walk away, and he goes, you too. <laughs> and I turned around, and he was just glowering at me. Really? Yeah, he was a he's a pretty cool dude. Yeah, he was funny. He he had a, his video on Reddit the other day, and uh, he was posting comments that people were making, like, "Is this dude serious? Like, I can't tell if this is a joke or not." Yeah, but it's both. It's like funny, but he's really really serious about pencil sharpening. I think it's just one of those things you just, just no need to explain it, man. Take yeah. it however you want. Agreed. His class was one of the most popular ones there, though, actually. Really? His pencil shop. Was it like a bring-your-own-pencil, or did he provide them? He provided the pencils and the equipment, but you took home everything. Nice. Uh, So, yeah, buy David's book, How to Sharpen uh, Pencils. It's excellent. He Mm -hmm. sent sent one to me yesterday, actually. Uh, I had to buy mine. Really? Yeah, you, me, and I each bought one. Well, I told him I was going to plug it. You should need to work it. Eh. Uh, Roman Mars was there. Yeah. Did you get to meet him, huh? I didn't. What? I I couldn't find him. Oh, yeah, that's right. I meant to tell you. He tweeted... That like the the low point was that he he kept missing you. Sorry, I forgot to. That's so weird. I like I looked around for him and I guess we just missed each other. Yeah, I well, emailed him the other day. Yeah, he, uh, he was sad. So Roman has a design and architecture podcast called Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, which is great. Yeah, he did a cool one about the twin towers on the anniversary, uh, really? and it was like he got his hands on like a recording of the sound they made, like swaying, wow, and creaking. It was really cool. Well, and the cool thing about that show is you don't have to be into design or architecture to to think it's an awesome show. Yeah, I just encourage you to listen to it. Uh, and then the comedians there, uh, Maria Bamford, who's a stalwart at Max Funcon, she's great. Uh, MariaBamford dot com. Cameron Esposito did the morning trivia with me. She stepped up and co-hosted. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, sports the side mullet, which she has coined that term. Yeah. It's like all shaved on one side and hangs down on the other. Yeah. And she is super sweet and very funny. And I'm really rooting for her in her career. It is the real Cameron Esposito.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, w. Bell, w. com. He has an upcoming show on FX this fall, his brand new TV show nice. premiering after Louie. Oh, wow. So he's like... He's set. Kind of crap in his pants right now. I'll bet. But um, very exciting time for him. It was cool to meet him at the stage. And the name of uh, Kamal's show is yeah. Totally Biased. Nice. And um, it premieres August 9th at 11 p.m. on FX. That is a huge plug, Chuck. Yeah. Uh, Steve Agee. Did you watch the Sarah Silverman show? Here or there. He was one of the neighbors, the two guys, the two gay guys. He was uh-uh. like kind of a big slovenly... Dude. <laughs> oh, you're thinking of... Um... Steve Agee. Okay. Okay. Uh, but he's very funny. And um, like all the other comedians are doing this very, like, not avant-garde, it's very interesting sort of different style of comedy. And then he gets up there and starts making, like, poop and marijuana jokes, <laughs> which is refreshing for me. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Steve Agee, that's A-G-E-E, 
or steveag.tumblr.com. Nice. Uh, Chris Fairbanks performed, chrisfairbanks.com. He was really great. Didn't get to meet him, but he was super funny. And, of course, John Hodgman. Yay. Follow John at Hodgman. Listen to Judge John Hodgman. Mm-hmm. You can buy his books, The Areas of My Expertise, more information than you require. That is all. And uh, what's his website? Uh, I don't know. It's it's not that is all. It's uh, areasofmyexpertise.com, I believe. Okay. And John stepped up as usual, and we did a fun uh, pub trivia together, and uh, it's just a great time. You know, Haji. Oh, yeah. Good, good dude. He's a great dude. I'm glad you had a good time, Chuck. It was fun. And it, and it was... Uh, it wasn't quite last year with Upright Citizens Brigade and Andy Richter. Like, that was huge for me just personally. This probably would have been bigger for you because of... Uh, MST3K? Yeah. Yeah. But um, they sent me an email and they said to say hello and that you guys are great. That is really something. Yeah. That is very nice. So support all these people. Support Jesse Thorne and his empire. They're all good folks doing great work. Couldn't, couldn't support nicer people. Yeah. The next time you see a knockoff Gucci wallet being sold on the street, just purchase it because the funds probably go to Jesse Thorne <laughs> and to provide for his family. That's right. Um, let's see. I don't even know what to call for. Best disco song ever? Sure. How about best overlooked disco song ever? Because, yeah, man, we've all heard Fly Robin Fly and all the other ones that we, we mentioned in this episode. I have Nights on Broadway is mine. Okay. Um, you can tweet to us. You can, uh, well, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. Um, and you can uh, send us an email, right? Right. I'll give you that email address in a second. But Chuck, I want to play us out with what I think is the greatest disco song of all time. All right, let's hear it. A Taste of Honey's Boogie Yogi Yogi. <laughs> so you got that playing right now? Yep. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at discovery. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 